That's our prayer, isn't it? That we would come here, we would come to the cross, we would remember why we're here as a church and as a people. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just ask now that as we have lifted you up in worship, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. We pray, Lord, that the words that we've just sung would be true in our lives. And that if we don't understand what those words mean, Lord, that you would bring an understanding to our minds now as we open your word and we look to you. Would you teach us? Would you make, op- make us open to hearing from your word this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Apparently not. Let me try it again. Good morning. Okay, that's a little better. All right. Thank you, Tom and team, for worship this morning. Thank you for being here. Excited to open God's Word. I want to tell you a story that happened a long time ago when I was a kid. I was a kid in the Awana program. I don't know how many of you know what that is. I was at the Awana program at the Whittier Hills campus. It's kind of a club for kids to memorize scripture, kind of like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. I think we learned to tie knots, but we also memorized a lot of scripture. And when I was a kid, we, um, we had hot dog night. I'm not sure what that was a reward for, but as a kid, a hot dog is a reward. Now, maybe not. Depends on the hot dog, probably. But as a kid, that was cool. We had hot dog night, and my dad at the time was the Awana commander. He was in charge of all of Awana. So it was his job to make sure that hot dog night went off without a hitch. And so being a good and organized person, as my dad is, as many of you know, he put someone in charge of cooking all the hot dogs so that he didn't have to attend to that on hot dog night. And then from time to time on hot dog night, he would check in with that guy, the grill guy, and make sure that he understood that it was his job to cook all the hot dogs, and he understood that. And as the time drew closer for the hot dogs to be grilled, my dad kept checking in with greater concern because no hot dogs were being cooked. And finally, about 10 minutes before the kids were going to be released from their classes to eat the hot dogs, he came to the hot dog guy who will rename, remain nameless, because I don't, some of you may know him, and um, he said, it is time to cook the hot dogs. The kids will be here in 10 minutes, and we need to cook them. And that's when they realized that he had failed to bring propane to cook the hot dogs. But not being the kind of guy who's flustered by that kind of thing, he just went to the refrigerator and he pulled out the hot dogs and he opened the pack and he rolled them on the grill and he put them in the hot dog buns and laid them out for all the kids. He said, don't worry about it, Jim. We'll just pretend we cooked the hot dogs and they'll have grill marks on them and when the kids put ketchup and mustard on them, they will never know the difference. We'll just pretend they're cooked. So they did, and they served hot dogs to all the kids. I was there that night, and you know how many kids complained? None of them. No one said a word. They just pretended they were cooked, and nobody said a word. That's a weird story to start a sermon with. Why did I say that? Here's the thing. Some of you walk in here this morning, and you're discouraged. You're frustrated. You are overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life as you walk in the door this morning. But you're not going to say anything. You're not going to say anything here, not at church, because you don't 
say those kinds of things at church. So you're going to walk in here this morning, you're just going to pretend that everything's okay. You're just going to pretend because you don't talk about that kind of stuff here at church. But maybe you find yourself in the midst of a difficult situation or a trial in your life and you're not sure what to do with it. You're not sure what God is doing in it and you're not sure if you can wait to find out until God gives you a solution to whatever this issue is that you're going through. In my position, in my job, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people and I know that a lot of you are walking into this room hurting but a lot of you don't feel comfortable sharing that here at church because it's, this is the kind of place you clean yourself up to walk into. Some of you are waiting for a job. You're waiting and waiting and you're frustrated this morning because despite everything that you're doing, it's just not materializing and you're discouraged by that. Some of you are discouraged by your job and you're praying that God would get you out of it and into something better and he's not doing that and so you're frustrated. Some of you are here and you're waiting for a baby and you're praying and praying for a baby and then you read the news and you hear people talking about things called unwanted pregnancy and you're shocked that there is such a thing. That concept is mind-blowing to you because you've prayed for years and years that God would bring that blessing into your life and He hasn't. And that grieves you. But some of you are walking in this morning and you're grieved because of your baby. Your child or your baby is disobedient or obstinate or a problem or they're starting to make poor choices or they've walked away from the Lord and that's a grief to your heart. Some of you this morning are waiting for a husband or a wife and you're discouraged by how that process is going and you're feeling lonely and you feel like everyone else has what you want and you can't have it and you don't know why God is asking you to wait or when the right one will come into your life and you're discouraged or you're frustrated or you're overwhelmed by that. Some of you walk in this morning and your discouragement and frustration is your husband or your wife. Sometimes that's just in a, the frustrating kind of way that relationships work, but sometimes that's a real grief on your heart. You're overwhelmed by it because no matter how hard you work, you can't seem to make it work and come together. And maybe you feel one or some of those things but when you walk in here, you're going to pretend that those things just aren't true because this is not the place where you do that. This is the place where you cover it all up and you stuff it all inside and you pretend you have no problems just like everybody else has no problems here at church. You just want to get some grill marks on you so that nobody can tell the difference between you and everybody else, right? Nobody can tell you're not cooked. Put a little ketchup and mustard on there. Nobody will know the difference. If you haven't heard us say it before, then hear me say it now. This is not that place. This is not the place for that. This is not the place to pretend that you're fine when you're not. This is not the place to come because you have things figured out. That's not what we claim here. This is where we come to be reminded that despite the discouragement and the frustration that we experience in our life, all of us, that we have hope. We have hope. This is the place where we come to be reminded that despite being overwhelmed, we find rest and we find peace in a God who loves us desperately in spite of all those things being true about us, in spite of all those struggles. That in spite of all the difficulties of life, God's got it under control. 
He's got a plan. He's got it together, whether we have it together or not. And I bring this up today because I think that's where a lot of us are. And I bring this up today because that's where we're going today in the book of Acts. Paul has been rescued a number of times. We've seen it happen again and again. Being torn apart and beaten by an angry mob and the Roman soldiers come and rescue him. Then he's about to be beaten by the Roman soldiers and God rescues him out of that situation as well. So Paul has had some narrow escapes lately in our study of Acts. But this tribune, this commander of the Roman soldiers who has arrested him, still has no idea what he's done wrong. And despite all of his attempts to get answers, he's got nothing. So he has Paul as a prisoner, but he really doesn't know why. And he's frustrated about that. Now you may remember that we said everything from Paul's conversion to his journey to Jerusalem, which is about where we are now, covers 30 years of Paul's life and happens over 11 chapters in Acts. 11 chapters covers 30 years, and then all of a sudden we get to chapters 22 and 23, which is where we are right now. Three days. Two chapters, three days. Now this is the kind of thing you want to pay attention to when you're studying Scripture. Why? Why does Luke slow down to cover three days over two chapters after he just covered 30 years in 11 I want you to think about that this morning as we're reading. What is so important that Luke wants to convey to the reader over last week and this week in the book of Acts? Why do you think he's so careful to show us this? So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have them here for you in the aisle. So you can get up and grab one, or you can raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you. Or if you'd rather not do any of those things, you can just listen. That's totally fine. But what I want you to know is that we have these Bibles here for you. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, even after the service, just come grab one and take it. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 22, just at the very end of it, in verse 30. If you're using our Bible, we're way at the end of the New Testament, page 932 is where we're going to be this morning. Paul is coming off what you might call a rough day. He's been beaten nearly to death. He's um, tried to give his defense and he's been shouted down and the people have asked that he would be killed and he spent the night in jail. And even though he was told by God that difficulty and persecution were going to come when he came to Jerusalem, he really doesn't know what that means. He's certainly experiencing it, but he doesn't really know what the future looks like for him. So read with me starting in verse 30 of chapter 22. It says this, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the tribune that we're talking about, the commander of a thousand men. He has not gotten a satisfactory answer, and he's tired of that. He's tried multiple times, so here's what he does. He had Paul in jail overnight. Now he goes to the Jewish leaders and he says, you will meet now, and here's Paul, sit, now explain. That's kind of what's going on. I need an answer. I don't know why I have this man as a prisoner. And here's what happens. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let's just stop for a minute because this is getting good. Okay? It's hard to discern exactly what is happening here as we read this, but it sounds a little tense. Paul does not get very far into his defense before the Jewish leaders, the council of elders, the Sanhedrin, before he's stopped. He basically says, up until this day, I have lived my life before God in good conscience. And what happens? He gets punched in the mouth for saying it. Now, what does that mean? Seems kind of rude, doesn't it? Here's the thing. What does it imply? Well, it implies that Paul is lying. This is like you standing before a judge in a courtroom and giving your defense and saying, this is why, judge, I believe that I am innocent. And he says, you're lying. The judge says that in the middle of your trial. In a trial where you are presumed innocent until proven guilty, the judge says, let the record show, I think he's lying. That's, what that, that's the equivalent. In the Jewish court, there's the same presumption, presumed innocent until proven guilty. And Paul gets about 15 words out of his mouth, and the high priest has him punched in the mouth. See, I don't believe your defense. And Paul takes issue with that. Because Ananias, the high priest, is the one that's meant to be impartial. He's the one that's meant to judge the case. Now, that would be unacceptable in our court of law, but this is meant to be God's court of law. And this is offensive to Paul, makes him angry. He kind of loses it a little bit. Now, there's some debate as to whether Paul is out of line here or whether Paul is responding in righteous anger. I think the truth may lie somewhere in between. What does he say to the high priest? It's a pretty strong response. He says, he gets punched in the mouth, and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is not an insult we use a lot anymore. What does it, what does it mean? It feels like he could come up with something better than that, doesn't it? It's actually much stronger than we would understand it to be in our culture now. Here's what he's saying. You're a hypocrite. That's what he's saying. You're a hypocrite. You're pretending everything's fine and everything's clean on the outside by like painting over all the imperfections and impurities and sin in your life, but on the inside, you're dead. You're corrupt. You're corrupt. Jesus actually used a very similar reference when talking to the Pharisees. He said, oh, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're real pretty, but inside, you're full of bones. You're dead inside. You're a mess. Paul is actually declaring judgment on Ananias, the high priest. He said, God is going to punch you in the mouth, you hypocrite. That's what he's saying. You pretend to judge me, and yet you don't even follow God's law. How can you do that? But the reaction to the people in the room is complete shock. And you can imagine why. Because no one would dare speak to the high priest like this. And so they say it. Would you say that to God's high priest? And what does Paul say? I didn't know he was the high priest. How is that possible? Or is that possible? There are a few explanations for this, a few different explanations. Paul has bad eyesight, 
and didn't know who the high priest was. Now, there's a lot in Scripture that would say that Paul actually has bad eyesight. I'm not sure if that satisfies this case. There are some who would say Paul didn't know who gave the order to punch him in the mouth, and so he's just rebuking the room, not necessarily Ananias. That probably carries a little more weight with me. I think Paul's rebuke seems so accurate and actually in the long run so prophetic. He says, God will be your judge, and it turns out Ananias is killed by his own people not too long from this point. Ananias, who we know from history, is corrupt and a horrible high priest, taking bribes and paying people off and all kinds of things. God's judgment does come on him. If you really pressed me for an opinion, I would say this. Based on everything that we can observe, I think that Paul's response is meant to be ironic. I think it's meant to be a further rebuke of Ananias. I think I would read it in this way is saying, how could I know that he is the high priest? There is no evidence to point to that. I don't, there is no way a high priest would act in this way. So how could I have known? And then he says, that's my bad. And let me quote Exodus 22 so you know that I know better. That's what this looks like. Ananias is a bully. He's terribly corrupt. Paul wants to tell people the gospel, the story of what Jesus has done in his life, changed his life completely. Ananias, who is meant to be God's high priest, is standing in the way. He is keeping people from hearing the truth of the gospel, and that makes Paul mad. And I would say that's righteous anger. He is angry on behalf of God. Now, is Paul out of line? Maybe. I think he might be out of line. He's certainly very frustrated. He's certainly very frustrated, but I I think he's angry about the right things. I'm just not sure that he's going about it the right way. It's hard to say for sure because we don't know Paul's motivation. We really don't. Luke can't tell us that, or he hasn't. One thing is for sure, Paul is riled up. He is angry at what's happening here, and that might explain a little bit of what happens next. Now look at what happens next. Verse 6 of chapter 23 says this, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. There's a way to read this where you would just say, Paul, you little punk. Like, look what you just did. Did you read the way that Luke wrote it? Paul looks around, kind of takes in who's in the room and is like, yeah, watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. Why, Why would we say that? Well, the room is part Sadducee, part Pharisee. That means Paul knows exactly the point of greatest dissension between them. He knows exactly what the issue is. And it would be easy to believe that Paul is just saying, let's stir it up a little bit, guys. 
Let's just have some fun. I don't think that's super consistent with what we know of Paul. But there's clearly something strategic going on because Luke tells us Paul looks around the room and then he makes this statement. So why does Paul do that? There's a couple reasons, I think. First, Paul is getting to the core of the issue. He doesn't want to dance around this a lot and argue about things that aren't important. He says, guys, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead after he was put to death on the cross. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised that we've been waiting for because I saw him and he told me. That's Paul's claim. So he's just getting right to the core of the issue. He said, we can argue all we want about a lot of things, but if we really boil it down, this is about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So I think he's shortcutting the argument. I think second, Paul is making it very clear to them that even they cannot agree on what the truth is. At some point during the chaos that ensues after Paul makes this statement, he has guys in the room arguing for his defense. Did you see that? There are Pharisees standing up and saying, hey, I don't have any problem with what Paul is saying. What? These are the same guys that have been hunting him down to try to kill him. And now they can't even agree together. In fact, they're taking his side. That is bizarre. And that is sad. Because the statement that they're making is, I actually have no issue with what he claims. I just refuse to believe it. That's what they're saying. The condition of their heart is completely exposed in this moment. This disagreement between this this meeting of the leaders of Israel gets so violent that the commander of the Roman soldiers is like, he has to call his soldiers in and pull Paul out of there again before they rip him apart. How many times has this happened? Three now in the last day. He has to take him out. Again, no real answers for this poor guy. Meanwhile, it would be very easy for us to understand that Paul walks away from this pretty discouraged because Paul cannot get his point across. No matter how clear he makes it, no matter what he tries to do, he is not convincing them. He is not helping them to see the gospel more clearly. Not only that, but he's had a rough couple of days. At this point, things are looking pretty grim. Paul wanted to go to Rome after he was done at Jerusalem. At this point, he's not even sure he's going to get out of Jerusalem because everybody wants him dead. Look what happens then in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here's what happens. Paul's discouraged, Paul is frustrated, and God shows up and encourages him. Jesus shows up and says, Paul, take courage. I have to imagine this is a welcome encouragement for Paul at this stage. Paul has been through an ordeal. He's been severely beaten. He's been humiliated and called a liar. He's lost his temper. And if he hasn't stepped out of line, he's at least pushed the boundaries of what's appropriate and what would be glorifying to God. And he's got to be feeling pretty low at this point. If he's left to the Sanhedrin, he'd definitely be killed. There's no question about that. And then Jesus shows up and he just says, Hey, Paul, don't worry. I got it. I got this. I have a plan. I got it all figured out. 
In fact, it's necessary as a part of my plan that you would testify to me in Rome. So relax. Take courage. I got this. And this is a strategic place because if we look at everything that happens before verse 11, it's all discouraging. And if we look at everything that happens after verse 11, it's all discouraging. And right in the middle of our passage this morning is Jesus who just shows up and says, I got it. Don't worry, I got it. I got it. And it's going to be important, Paul, for you to remember that I have a plan because things aren't going to get any better right away. And then watch, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So things don't really get better. After Jesus shows up and encourages him, there's more discouraging news. Now there's a plot to take his life, and more than 40 guys come together and take a... This is a legitimate vow. This is serious. We are not going to eat or drink until he's dead. That means it's going to happen soon because we're not going to do anything until then. And then they go to the Jewish leaders and they say, hey, we need your help to pull this off. And they're like, yeah, we're in. We like this plan. So 40 men commit themselves to this. And then the leadership of Israel says, thumbs up. You have our authority behind it. Serious men with serious intentions, with serious backing, means Paul is in serious trouble. But here's the thing. When Paul was discouraged, God encourages him. When Paul is in danger, God protects him. Watch what happens next. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This is an amazing coincidence, don't you think? These 40 guys secretly decide to kill Paul, and they bring the Jewish leadership into this plot to kill Paul, and they say, you're going to send for him, and we're going to wait, and we're going to ambush him, and we're going to kill him. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew, this kid, happens to overhear the whole thing. What what possible conflagration of events transpire that this kid is there to hear the whole thing? And then that he would tell the tribune, and he's going to do something about it, and look what he does. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers 
with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So here's the problem for Paul. There are 40 guys who want to kill him and all of the authority of the Jewish leadership. And then God says, I see that, and I raise you 470 armed soldiers and the governor, Felix. What do you think about that? God says, I got it. Don't worry about it. 470 men, that is half the men under the command of the tribune. It is overwhelming force. This is shock and awe, if we were to borrow a more current term. He said, I am going to make sure that this guy that's done whatever, I don't know, does not get killed on my watch because I know he's a Roman citizen and I'm going to wash my hands of this thing and I'm going to send him to the governor and I'm going to make sure he gets there. And there are not, 40 hungry guys are not going to take out my 470 soldiers on the way in the middle of the night. It's not going to happen. And then he writes a letter to the governor and here's the letter that he writes. Verse 25. He wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune who's been watching over Paul, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that's mostly true. It's not exactly the timeline as we remember it, but it's mostly true. Verse 28 Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So, verse 31, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the tribune sends Paul under heavy guard to the governor and says, not my fault, he was alive when he left me. I have done my job, and here's the thing. I don't think he's done anything wrong. I don't think he deserves death. I actually don't even think he deserves imprisonment. I think it's a Jewish thing. I can't make heads or tail of it, so please see to it. You figure it out, because I cannot, despite my repeated attempts. Paul falls once again under the protection of Rome because God has bigger things in mind for him. And Felix, the governor, reads the letter, finds out that Paul falls under his jurisdiction as a Roman citizen and says, I will hear your case. I will be your judge. Now, I'm not sure if you recognize what just happened. This whole thing is a setup. This whole thing has been a setup from the beginning. Do you see it? God said, Paul, you're going to be my witness. You're going to be my witness to the Jews and to the Gentiles and to kings and rulers. And we've seen him go to the Jews and to the Gentiles. But what happens if Paul walks into Felix's office? I don't know if he has an office or not. Walks into Felix's office and says, 
I need to tell you about Jesus, and I want you to hear me. He probably gets thrown out or beaten or killed. But what just happened? Felix said, Paul, you're going to tell me about Jesus, and I don't want you to leave anything out. I'm going to hear the whole thing. I will be the judge of what you're saying, and I will hear your accusers. So I will allow you to defend yourself in front of me. Don't leave anything out, Paul. I want to hear the whole thing. That's what just happened. It was all a setup. God set it up from the very beginning. And I'm not sure any of them saw it coming. I'm not even sure Paul saw it coming. When Paul is frustrated, God comes alongside and encourages him at a dark time when he's discouraged. When Paul is in danger, God protects him with overwhelming force. He says, Paul, I got something better. Don't worry about this plot against your life. And then when Paul is powerless to control his circumstances, God demonstrates complete control. I got it. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. He's like, Paul, this is all part of my plan. I need you to be my faithful witness, and I will handle the details. Don't worry about the details. You just be faithful to proclaim what's true about me. That's what I need from you. So this morning, maybe you find yourself in a difficult place. You find yourself frustrated or discouraged or overwhelmed by your circumstances and you don't know what God is doing and you don't know if you can wait for him to release you from that because it's really difficult. Here's what I would say. If you're a follower of Jesus, be encouraged. Be encouraged by that because God's got it. God is in control. He has a plan. And he's saying, here's all I need from you. You be faithful to me, and I will handle the details. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. Maybe you're going to step out of line. It doesn't mean it's even going to end the way you want it to end. He's just saying, I need you to be faithful to me. I will handle the details. I'm in control, and you are not. Sometimes our situation just seems hopeless, but for the follower of Jesus, there is always hope. There is always hope because we don't hope in things like our jobs or our marriage or our kids or the circumstances of our life. That's not where our hope resides. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Our hope is because despite all the garbage and all the baggage and all the sin in our life, we can stand before God blameless because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a true thing. Because he took our place, we can stand before him blameless. Blameless. So you don't have to walk into this place and pretend that you have it all together. Because nobody here can claim that. And that's not what we claim when we walk into this place. What we claim is that in spite of all of our garbage and baggage and sin, Jesus said... Let's trade places. I'll stand in your place and you stand in mine. And I will take your sin and I will die your death and you become a child of God. And I don't have to tell you, that is the best offer you will ever get. Let's trade places. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation and that's where your hope lies, then be encouraged. I don't care what you're going through. Be encouraged. You have hope. God says, you be faithful to me and I'll handle the details. And no matter what happens, you have hope. 
because you are mine. You belong to me. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have never put your trust in him, then I would say this this morning. You will not get a better offer in all of your life than the offer to exchange your life for his. Jesus says, I got this. You trust me. You take my place, I'll take yours. It's going to work out, I promise. I'd like to encourage you to take out your connection card. I pointed that out at the beginning of the service. Some of you come in this morning and you carry burdens with you. And we would love to be able to pray for you. We would love to know what those are because we'd love to help you carry those. We'd love to help you pray over those. We'd love to share those because we're a family the family of God, and that's what we're here to do. So I would encourage you to fill out a prayer request and tell us the burden that you're carrying this morning. Maybe this morning you're realizing that you're here and you're pretending you've got it all together and you do not and you need someone to hear that and you need to share that with someone and you just need to tell someone. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to have that conversation. You're realizing you don't have anywhere to go with that. You don't have any people in your life that care for you that will carry you through that. There's a place on there you can say, I'm interested in getting involved in a life group. I don't even know what that is. That just means I want to have people in my life who love me and care for me like family and will help me be more like Jesus and will help each other work toward this because it's hard. We invite you into that. We would encourage you to take advantage of that. Maybe you realize this morning that you have never trusted Christ for your salvation. You have never surrendered your life to him. You have never accepted that offer to exchange places with his son. And you realize this morning that you're discouraged and you're in trouble and you're out of control and you're ready to give up and give that control over to God in your life. And there's a place on that card where you can just say, I want to become a follower of Jesus or I want to know more about it. Please tell me more about that because I need hope. Doesn't mean you'll never be discouraged or frustrated or overwhelmed or out of control, what it does mean is that you acknowledge that you're overwhelmed and out of control and that you give that over to God. You say, I have hope in God and who he is. I've surrendered my life to his. And no matter what happens, I will stand before God blameless as his child. And he will say, I got you. You are mine. You are mine. I'm going to invite our worship team up right now. And here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to give you some time to look at those cards, maybe spend some time with the Lord this morning and just pray. Our worship team is going to sing through a song, How Great Is Our God. They're going to sing this to you while you spend some time with the Lord. And then there's going to be a point where Tom will invite the ushers up and we'll invite you to turn in your connection cards and we'll take our offering. And our offering this morning is for our regular attenders. If you're visiting, there is no expectation for you to give. We would love to receive those connection cards from you, but that's all we would ask. This is an opportunity to use to spend some time with the Lord, reflect on the words that we're going to sing together, and then when it's your opportunity to sing, I would just encourage you, sing it. If you believe it, sing it. And if you don't believe it, listen and pray that God would work in your heart. Would you do that?